Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Gilded Age Northeast. Please follow along on the PowerPoint and turn to the first slide. By the year 1900, the United States was the world's greatest industrial nation and producer of food. Now, America had always been great at farm output, but the scale of business increased America's yield worldwide. In addition, industry was booming due to four main factors. First, the abundance of natural resources like oil and coal. Second, immigration, which led to larger populations and more workers. Third, the growing urban population, which meant that there were more people to work jobs in the industrial centers. The fourth and final reason were the new inventions of the era. For instance, in 1878, the patent for the first American gasoline engine was passed, and this revolutionized transportation and eventually led to an essential need for petroleum. Another invention was the incandescent light bulb, invented by Thomas Alva Edison in the 1870s. Furthermore, in the 1880s, George Westinghouse would use alternating currents to send electricity over long distance with power lines. The result was that by the 1890s, there were over 3 million electric lights in the United States. And this was especially important since it replaced dangerous gas lamps and extended the workday, which was already long for most workers. Another invention in this era was the telephone. Before telephones, telegrams reigned supreme, and this was invented by Samuel Morse in the 1840s, who had in fact wanted government regulation but not ownership over this technology, because he feared that speculation and private corruption would also lead to disastrous consequences. However, Congress refused, because in the 1840s, regulating business was not something Congress had any taste for. So in the beginning, telecommunications was viewed by the inventors as something that the government should regulate, but the politics would not allow it. Over the years, many telegraph companies sprang up, and by the turn of the century, the largest company was Western Union. But they did not try to expand into people's homes out of fear that this would open calls for regulation of the industry. Meanwhile, the telephone had been invented by Alexander Graham Bell in 1876, and this was a new and different regulatory environment. At first, telephones were viewed as luxury items only for the super-rich, and most phones afterwards were installed in drugstores in order to increase foot traffic. But phone calls were still rare. Maybe a person made just one call per year. But the new technology quickly caught on, so that by the 1890s, the American Telegraph and Telephone Company, AT&T, had installed over 1 million telephones in the nation. Between 1894 to 1904, over 6,000 independent telephone companies went into business in the United States, and the number of telephones had boomed from 285,000 to 3,317,000. Many previously unwired areas got their first telephone service, and many others got competing companies. But the multiplicity of telephone companies produced a new set of problems. There was no interconnection, 
Scribers to different telephone companies could not call one another. And after 1904, the new regulatory environment had changed, and people viewed regulation as the government's job, and more people believed in equal access to goods. Hence, private telephone ownership takes off. The point is that the government has always picked winners and losers based on the political economy of what is politically possible at the time and based on people's changing attitudes. Governments have always supported business, again, picking winners and losers. Millions of dollars of government money in millions of acres of government land were devoted to subsidizing private railroads and telegraph companies. And this leads us to our next topic, big business. So please turn to the next slide. We have to ask ourselves, how is it that business got so massive during the Gilded Age? Well, they practiced two things, vertical and horizontal integration. Vertical integration is when a company buys every other company that had anything to do with the industrial process. So for example, to make steel, you need, among other things, iron and raw materials, coal, railroads, and shipping to transport the items. So now with vertical integration, you not only own the steel mill, but also the iron fields, the coal fields, and then the railroad lines to bring all the raw materials to your mill to make steel. So that's the first step. The second step is businesses also practice horizontal integration. And this is where companies buy out every other company that make a similar product in order to eliminate competition. This is pretty much like Microsoft buying up all other software developers. And the idea is to create a monopoly, which was also called a trust in that era. Now, we actually have a myth that the Gilded Age was filled with monopolies like Western Union. But in fact, these were not that common. In reality, there was more like an oligopoly, or an industry controlled by a few forms, which was far more common. Now, monopolies and oligopolies can be bad things, as they set prices, drive down competition, stifle innovation, and enact unfair working practices. But they also can do good things. For instance, from 1880 to 1890, Andrew Carnegie was able to drop the price of a ton of steel from $67 to $17. And in 1900, Carnegie Steel produced more steel than every other steel company in Great Britain combined. So this is creating production at an industrial level in order to meet the industrial scale of demand, which helps and hurts consumers. Let's now take a look at the men who fueled the rise of big business development and turn to the next slide business titans. As we've already discussed, railroads were the first big American business, but there were others as well. The steel industry had become huge due to men like Andrew Carnegie. He was a Scottish immigrant whose parents were poor, and he began his career by working for the Pennsylvania Railroad as a young boy. Eventually, his talent and thrift allowed him to rise through the ranks and accumulate great wealth. He finally was able to create the Carnegie Steel Company, which was centered in Pittsburgh and eventually became the biggest steel producer in the United States. Hence the football team name, the Pittsburgh Steelers. 
Carnegie accomplished this because he used new technologies to make cheaper and better products. And he also encouraged competition among his employees and embraced cutthroat business practices that hurt competitors and workers alike. In 1900, Carnegie's company was bought by J.P. Morgan and his U.S. Steel Company. And Morgan combined Carnegie Steel with 180 other steel companies to create the world's first billion-dollar company. And those of you who watch the news should have seen that within the last few years, Apple became the world's first trillion-dollar company. U.S. Steel is a pretty clear example of horizontal integration. And by 1906, Morgan's company produced nearly 90% of the nation's steel. So we have to ask ourselves, how and why did Carnegie succeed? Well, hard work and smart business practices, as well as government protection, as they usually sided with business over unions. And also, Morgan used cutthroat business practices, which would lead to much resentment. Another business tycoon was John D. Rockefeller and his company, Standard Oil. Rockefeller had also used vertical and horizontal integration. And from 1880 to 1890, Rockefeller cut the cost of a gallon of kerosene from 5 cents to 0.005 cents a gallon. By the early 1880s, he controlled 90% of all oil refining in the United States. Well, just how big was his company? When the courts finally ordered it broken up in 1911, its constituent pieces formed the modern companies of ExxonMobil, Amoco, Chevron, Sunoco, and Conoco. Interestingly enough, one of Rockefeller's descendants, Winthrop Rockefeller, eventually became the governor of Arkansas in the 1960s. But that is a story for another day. Please turn to the next slide entitled, Business Titans. Carnegie, Rockefeller, and Morgan, among others, were called captains of industry by some since they were so successful, while their critics called them robber barons to emphasize their cutthroat business practices. While these men did acquire great amounts of wealth, many of them also gave up their money to charity and philanthropic causes. These robber barons sought to convince others that economic inequality was justified. So in 1889, Carnegie published an essay called Wealth, which said that competition was good, but he also espoused the tenets of social Darwinism when he argued that some men were bound to be more successful than others. Carnegie also said that some rich people should give their excess profits to things that benefit the community, like schools and libraries. And during his lifetime, Carnegie gave away 90% of his wealth. And so, many captains of industry followed this advice. Thus, the universities of Carnegie Mellon, or Vanderbilt University, are named after some of these robber barons. Rockefeller followed suit and gave over $500 million towards medical research and the University of Chicago. Now, of course, these donations were usually towards elitist cultural centers where the people were largely unwelcome. So are they really helping the people, or just their sort of people? As a result of the rampant wealth inequality in the nation, opponents of social Darwinism said that survival of the fittest was wrong, 
since Jesus had blessed the meek, not the fittest. These opponents led the social gospel movement, which emphasized that it was a Christian duty to improve social conditions just as Jesus had preached. They wanted to make the earth fit for the kingdom of heaven, and while government was initially reluctant to engage in any social justice, reformers eventually pushed that it was the Christian duty to protect mothers and children from the excesses of the market economy. For instance, many argued for temperance or prohibition, a war on alcohol, since liquor destroyed families and led to child and spousal abuse. These reformers engaged in a type of middle-class paternalism, and in order to fix society, they thought they had to make the poor more like the middle class and assimilate them into white Anglo-Saxon Protestant values that would also destroy immigrant cultures. Over time, women argued in favor of the concept of civic maternalism that said that women were more virtuous and thus had a societal duty to protect families through charities and by pushing the government to increase regulation. Another example of the social gospel movement was Charles Sheldon's book, In His Steps, which inaugurated the phrase, What Would Jesus Do? This book was about reforming drunks, taking in the poor, and public officials resigning in the face of rampant corruption. Its message of Christ's grace and favor influencing people through small acts of kindness and encouragement rather than obvious miracles impacted a generation. And the social gospel movement will see its strongest advocate in the perennial presidential candidate William Jennings Bryan. Bryan was a congressman from Nebraska, an evangelical Protestant, and a believer that government needed to protect families from corrupt businesses. He and others believed that the government had a role to regulate business in order to protect these Americans. And all of this will presage the progressive movement reformers that will emerge at the turn of the 20th century. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Regulations. As the robber barons benefited from runaway capitalism, which many believed grounded the poor under their heel, cartoons of the era compared the trust to an octopus strangling their prey. Many called on the government to do more to protect the people from such excesses. And the first major step came in 1887 with the Interstate Commerce Act, which said that railroads must charge, quote, reasonable and just rates. It also forbade companies from conspiring to eliminate competition, and it set up the Interstate Commerce Commission, called the ICC, to oversee railroad rates. Three years later, in 1890, Congress passed the Sherman Antitrust Act, which attempted to outlaw monopolies in all businesses, not just railroads. And theoretically, it forbade companies from operating to restrain trade. However, this vague wording was sometimes used by the courts against unions. And this established an important precedent for the future. But in this era, federal courts usually prevented aggressive enforcement of these acts. And we see this because U.S. Steel, described earlier, was actually formed 10 years after the Sherman Act was passed. The point 
is that while these pieces of legislation had limited success in preventing oppressive business practices, future regulations would be necessary as business continued to grind the common man under their foot. I'm going to try to keep these lectures in shorter intervals, that way you will help maintain your focus. So, when you are ready, listen to the second part of the Gilded Age Northeast. I hope you are all making smart decisions and staying safe. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.